This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we'll be looking each week at some of the key stories in the region as covered by RFA. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. His job is to turn the reporting of RFA's nine language services, that's in Burmese, Khmer, Uyghur, Tibetan, Vietnamese, Mandarin, Cantonese, Lao and Korean, into stories for an English-speaking audience. He's what people from another era would have termed an Asia hand, having reported from China, South Korea and Japan, as well as Washington, D.C. How you doing, Paul? Great. Thanks, Matt. So I understand you were up uh, late last night putting the finishing touches to an RFA exclusive story out of North Korea. Yes, indeed. A fishing boat captain was publicly executed after one of his unhappy crew members turned him in for listening to Radio Free Asia, a habit he acquired when he was in the Army years earlier. Oh, that sounds pretty grim. And you're speaking to one of your colleagues on that? Yes, our North Korea watcher at RFA English is Eugene Huang, and he's lived on the peninsula and more or less been involved with Korean affairs his whole life. So he's taken a look at that story. He wrote the English final copy, and we'll be chatting with him briefly. Okay, that's good. Interesting to hear more about that. But first, we have an item from Southeast Asia out of Myanmar. Radio Free Asia often reports on sensitive stories in Myanmar that local news outlets steer clear of for fear of offending authorities or attracting problems in a legal system that remains weighted against free expression. An example of this happened this summer when a local woman alleged she had been raped by three government soldiers during military operations in Rakhine State. RFA was alone among media in Myanmar in reporting the case when it happened. And this month, in a rare case of the military punishing its own for crimes against civilians, the three soldiers were sentenced to 20 years in prison. To tell me about how RFA handled this story and to discuss its significance, I'm joined by John Mintun, a senior editor for the Burmese service. Welcome, John Mintun. Thank you very much for having me. Tell me a little bit about how all this began. Where did this rape happen and who was involved? The victim was an ethnic Rakhine woman, a 36-year-old mother of four children, including a daughter who a few days prior gave birth a baby. So actually she was a grandmother, newly grandmother. She had been sexually assaulted by the three uniformed soldiers, Rathedown Township, about 40 miles north of the uh, capital city, in the late night on June 29, when they found her and her relatives hiding in the shelter, I mean in bone shelter in their home during the government military's clearing operations in their village. So the government military, the Tatmadaw, was doing sort of security operations in its fight against the Arakan army insurgents. Is that right? Yes, yes. What happened now? I understand that they sort of gave the woman some money to stay quiet. Yes, they gave 20,000 checks, $15 in U.S. currencies. It was on July 1st we got this initial news. It was the time when the military forces are doing the clearing operations in ethnic Rakhine villages in two townships, Putidaho and Rathedams. Arabi has been reporting thousands of IDBs uh, fleeing their homes in the region in prior days. During that, those days, several allegations of rights violations were out on Burmese social media, including raids and torture by the government soldiers. 
Most of the allegations came from the local groups or supporters of River Araka Army. On July 2nd, RFA reporter informed us in DC headquarters that the raid was actually happened and it was by three soldiers. And he said that an UN agency was helping her family out of the village for security. By the way, over the past several years, the Myanmar military has been alleged for rape. Some even allege that the military has been systematically using rape as a weapon, a weapon of war against the ethnic minorities. And it was also a big issue in the case filed at the International Court of Justice by the Gambia last year. As you mentioned, that the Tamadol was accused in its crackdown on Rohingya Muslims, which is also in Rakhine State. Three years ago, there were many rapes. So in, the, in this case, this Rakhine woman was assaulted by these three soldiers. Now, we were actually able to interview the victim, right? Yes. The first day when the reporter informed us, I told him that we need to verify all allegations. We need to get reaction from both sides as well. So we did the release the story on July 2nd after we got the interview with the victims and as well as for a reaction from the state border security minister that day. Okay, so we were able to interview the victim and we preserved her anonymity. We didn't name her. We managed to corroborate the account of what happened. We're speaking with uh, other people in the vicinity and, and NGOs and, yes. and, and the UN. So key question, what was the military's initial response to this rape allegation when we first reported it? It was very interesting that on July 2nd evening, the military spokesman returned RFA call informing that rape allegation was not true. and. He also said they released an official statement on their website uh, saying that they have done internal investigation by the uh, senior officers and they even had video record of villagers that allegation was not true. The spokesman even told that it was part of the uh, disinformation campaign released by the AA reverse and supporters to defame the military. Follow up report, we even used that soundbite, what he actually said. So initially they denied it. Okay. Now, the interesting thing here is that the victim and other civil society organizations did not let the matter drop. Local authorities or the police eventually undertook an investigation despite the military's denials. Is that right? Yes. Uh, local authorities know this might be true because the Yakai communities are very tight-knit each other. So on July 5th, the uh, local groups having the victim decided to bring out the case to the police station. It is remarkable that they accept the case, even though military already denies from the NAPDOR, they already deny publicly, but in local level, the police, state police accept the case. And eventually, the military changed its stance. Yes. On September 9, the military confirmed RFA that the soldiers confessed that they committed the crime. And the spokesman even told us that it is part of the DNA match with the, the one raised by the bitten. Now, at the start of December, these soldiers went to trial in a military court. Can you tell us a little bit about those proceedings? Were they open? The military tribunal, uh, a temporary tribunal in Situe, that's relatively transparent because the NGOs and also the bitten family are able to attend there but not the media, but according to the women network, they say is quite transparent. So why do you think that the military 
took action in this case and actually punished some of its own soldiers for, you know, these abuses against civilians. But we can say this is a landmark case. Military never publicly acknowledged the rape committed by its soldiers, let alone punished publicly in the past. The military has been facing serious rape allegations in the past in other ethnic areas, including uh, northern Rakhine against the uh, Rohingya minorities. But this time, number one is leadership. The military leadership was very concerned about its reputation as it was facing allegations at the uh, ICJ on war crimes against the Rohingya Muslims. They, they want to show no impunity this time. Number two was concern over its standing among the ethnic Rakhine communities as it is on the other hand fighting against Rakhine rivals. Until 2019, ethnic Rakhine men were very loyal members in Myanmar military. There's a lot of Rakhine servicemen in uh, Myanmar military too. So military leadership never imagined that Rakhine conflict would become this serious. Since the uh, Rakhine were very close relationship and similar identity with majority bombers in Myanmar society, I think they realized they need to maintain that re relationship. Okay, so basically, they're concerned over their reputation as they face these war crimes allegations in the International Court of Justice over the Rohingya crackdown. And they're concerned about alienating, further alienating ethnic Rakhines. Yes. So this is obviously, a, you know, it was a hugely sensitive story. And RFA was basically alone in reporting the initial rape allegation. Why is it you think that local news outlets were so reluctant to cover it? The ATV group reported the news but uh, with a few lines, no detail. And no mainstream national media, uh, except RFA, Burmese reported the story because the story involves serious allegations against the uh, powerful military. Military often responded to those reports, such big allegations, with lawsuits under vaguely watered defamation and national security laws that can carry very long prison sentences. So most of the uh, outlets do not want to be in that situation. They stay clear from the military, obviously. That is why RFA was alone to report this story. Um, John Mentun, thank you very much for talking us through this fascinating and important story. Thank you very much, Matt, for having me. That's great work by RFA Burmese. Now we turn to North Korea. Eugene Huang has been observing North Korea for nearly two decades and has covered North Korea for RFA since 2018. He joins us to discuss the execution of a fishing captain who got caught listening to RFA and also the harrowing account of a female prison camp survivor. Eugene, a fishing captain, was executed in front of 100 other captains or other fisheries officials in October. Why would they go so far as to execute him in front of so many people? This man was uh, executed for listening to RFA content while he was at sea. And from sources from this and other previous reports, we know that listening to foreign media, especially news broadcasts, is very common among people from the military and especially in the Signal Corps or those who work out at sea because they think that uh, the government is not watching them when they're out in the secluded waters out in the sea. And some of the other cases we reported on, the punishments were like just uh, time in a labor camp or something of that nature. But in this case, I think they wanted to make an example out of him. So that is why they 
executed in front of so many people to just show these people that like, no, we're going to take this seriously. And if you're going to listen to foreign media, it means death. And so that's why they did a public execution in front of all those other people. So it's a fear tactic, mostly. Well, why does the government make it so hard for ordinary North Koreans to get outside information in this day and age? That's a good question. Um, the government wants the people to know nothing about the outside world because they tell people that North Korea is the greatest society on the earth. And as bad as things are there, people are led to believe that the outside world is even worse. So that's why the government is afraid that the people will learn through these news broadcasts that uh, in other countries there are not constant food shortages and there are not continuous blackouts and things of that nature. So I guess the government fears that if the people know these things, they might it might increase the chances that they would want to rise up and demand that the leadership give them what we in other countries almost take for granted. In the case of this captain who was executed in October, shot, he was seemed to be no ordinary fisherman. He seemed to own a fleet of some 50 boats, according to our report. What makes a North Korean fisherman like this different from his counterparts around the world or in the West that we would know? And uh, how was his fishing contributing to the slush fund of leader Kim Jong-un? Well, from this story, what we know is that the captain was working for an organization called Samship Kuhoshil, which translates directly as Room 39, but uh, it's officially known as the Central Committee Bureau 39 of the Workers' Party of Korea. And that group was set up in the late 1970s by the current leader Kim Jong-un's father, Kim Jong-il, who was not the leader at the time. But uh, the purpose of that organization is to make money for the Kim dynasty. So basically all profits from any activities run by this secret Bureau 39. They go straight into the accounts of the Kim family. And I guess the difference between North Korean fishermen and their counterparts out in the world would be that, you know, typical North Korean fishermen would get paid a government salary to go work on a boat. And then they collect the salary, which isn't enough to live on, regardless of how many fish they catch. And as I understand how it works in other countries, perhaps they earn a share of the profits, the total profits that uh, the boat would make, depending on the number of fish they would catch. Now, this captain, his name was Captain Che. He's not an ordinary fisherman. When they say he owned 50 boats, it sounds like he's a very wealthy man. But if that were the case, you know, he wouldn't need to go out and do fishing himself or go out to sea himself. He would just hire his crew to do that for him. So I think what that means is that he's in charge of the fleet and he will instead earn a high salary because of the organization he works for. That's what it seems like to me. Well, that happened in October. More recently, we reported about a woman who just got out of prison, a work camp, on a general amnesty in October. She had a grueling tale of her existence there. How did RFA's Korean service get to talk to this woman? And what stands out to you about her story? If you were to listen to the Korean services reports on her, uh, you can hear that they were able to get her on the phone somehow. And I think that in itself is extremely very extraordinary. She was among one of the 7,000 that was released during the general amnesty in celebration of the 75th anniversary of the founding of the Korean Workers' Party. That was October 10th. But I guess to protect her identity, we were unable to give any identifying details. So we won't know why she was in prison in the first place or how long. I think what stood out about her story was the vivid detail in which she talked about the cruelty of the prison guards and the hellish conditions she and others suffered while they were in prison. How does a person 
land in a labor camp like that and who decides how long they stay and uh, what level of abuse they receive. I think I should mention that there are two different kinds of prison camps in North Korea. There's the Kyoaso, which is a re-education through labor camp, and the Kualiso, or the political prison camp. The Kualiso is administered by the Ministry of State Security, and that North Korea denies that these prisons exist. And these are the places where people are extrajudicially sent after having been, quote-unquote, disappeared for having wrong thoughts, actions, or associations, in the words of David Hawke. So... These are the prisons where in the past it wasn't just the criminal, but their entire family for three generations were sent. So it would include dissidents or the families of political rivals who were purged, for example. The Kyoaso, meanwhile, is administered by the Ministry of Public Security, and North Korea does acknowledge that it sends criminals here. So this woman has to have been sent to one of those facilities because uh, if she's going to be given amnesty, the government obviously has to acknowledge that she's there in the first place. I see, but still, she was treated harshly and saw some terrible things. Mm -hmm. What would be the government's goal in keeping a woman like that in such conditions? This is another example of, of spreading fear as a deterrence. She talks about one of the people in her account where uh, her crime was watching a South Korean movie, and she was basically beaten to death after having not worked for being in this prison. Basically, for common crimes, they want to send people here as a deterrent. And when they're released, I'm sure these people will tell the rest of society some of the things that they experienced, and then that will enact some amount of complicity among, among the public to submit to authority. Well, now North Korea's leader for the last, uh, say, eight years has been a partly Swiss-educated young man, and he might be modern-minded. Is there any reason to believe or hope that he would do away with this system? I would probably say no to that. Um, according to the Daily NK, they say that in 2012, there were 130,000 people in the prison system, and now there are 160,000. So uh, Kim Jong-un has actually increased the population of the prisons by about 30,000. And this, of course, does not account for all the people that have died in those years in between. So I don't think there's any sign of him getting rid of these prisons. There we've heard Eugene Huang bringing us up to date on two recent big stories on North Korea from Radio Free Asia's Korean service. Thank you, Eugene. And now back over to Matt. Thanks a lot, Paul. North Korea is just about the toughest place to report on, or at least to squirrel out first-hand news like that. RFA coverage is not KCNA, that's for sure. Indeed, that's the truth, Matt. Okay, so that wraps it up for this episode. We'll resume our podcast in the new year. Until then, you can read RFA coverage on our website. That's rfa.org. Our past podcasts are at that site or on other platforms like Spotify and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. Not VOA, but EOA. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia, alongside Paul Eckert. This podcast series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again 